Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. Today we'll be reviewing the finals of the men's and women's Copa Libertadores, as well as taking a look at the Women's World Cup draw and also rounding up some of the other action from around the different leagues on the continent. We'll also take a quick look at the Copa Sudamericana final, which is at its halfway point. With you to discuss all of this and more is a full house this week um, on this episode. So first up, I'm going to go to Austin Miller. How are you, Austin? I'm doing quite well, Adam. You said it rightly, a full house on the show tonight. I'm quite excited. We had a bit of snow here in the United States and North Carolina, which doesn't happen very often. So enjoying a winter wonderland right now in my part of the world. Also joining us is Simon Edwards, who usually is coming from us from Colombia, but not this week. No, I'm I'm in England and I'm very, very cold, but, you know, looking forward to a nice cold Christmas. Christmas has to be cold, um, but I had, I had a couple of days of December in Colombia and now I'm looking forward to a bit of Christmas in England and going over all of the happenings in South American football this week. And also joining us is possibly the happiest man on this pod this week, and that is Mr. Tom Nash. Tom, how are you doing after yesterday? Still celebrating? Still hungover? Good evening. Yeah, uh, very well. There was lots of celebrating in, in Buenos Aires last night, especially in, in, in my half of the city. So, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people who had a bad night's sleep. There's a, there's a tradition in Argentina of uh, beeping your horn, your car horn, as, as long and loud as you can. So that went on into the small hours. It was about 1.30. I was trying to get to sleep and there were still people beeping their horn, driving around close to the Monumental. So, yeah, I'll be looking forward to a good night's sleep tonight, hopefully. Hopefully you can stay awake for this pod. Um, and last but not least is Tom Robinson. How are you, Tom? I'm very good. I had a, a very different experience of the Libertadores uh, final, watching it in, in a pub in Norwich with a load of Finnish guys who'd, who'd come to see Timo Puki play. The so, man, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> exactly. I thought you'd like that. Um, and even, even met a fellow Villa fan. So, you know, we're spread all over the globe. Okay, well, let's get this pod underway. Um, and we're going to start by looking at the Copa Libertadores final, the men's final, that is, uh, between Boca Juniors and River Plate. Match, as I'm sure anybody listening to this <laughs> knows by now, was, uh, was won by River Plate. Um, depending on who you believe, it was either won 3 1 as a one-off final, or 5-3 on aggregate as a two-legged final, and the match was rather controversially played in Madrid. Um, I think I speak for all the pod on this, that as, as, as experts on South American football, you know, I think we were unanimously against the final being moved to Madrid. Um, I wrote an article on World Football Index um, about why I thought the final shouldn't be played in Madrid. And uh, so anybody, lis- uh, anybody listening to this who wants to know, you know, kind of the reasons why there was so much feeling against that decision uh, from this side of the water, then I urge you to go and read that. Anyway, let's get on with analysis of the game. Um, I'm going to leave it to my, my four um, colleagues here on the pod to discuss it amongst themselves. 
Austin, you can get us underway for your review of this final. Yeah, it was it was really interesting, Adam, because you mentioned all, all of the storylines and all the controversy over this match being played in Madrid. And, you know, you're you, I think you're definitely correct in saying that it was a decision that not a lot of us were terribly fond of. But I think the thing that is most frustrating and maybe disheartening about it all is the 210 minutes of football that we got because the second leg went to the extra time over the two legs really, really good, especially from a South American standard. A fantastic 2-2 draw in the first leg at La Bombonera, which set things up very nicely for the second leg, which then had to be moved to Madrid, and we had to go through and jump all these hoops. And then even still, the football was pretty good. A a choppy first half, I think it's fair to say, but then it really opened up uh, right towards halftime. Naitan Nandez uh, of Boca Juniors with one of the passes of the tournament to find Dario Benedetto. How about the form that he's been in? Five goals in his last four to give Boca the lead. Uh, and then as as kind of happened so much in this tournament on the pitch for River, Juan Fernando Quintero came on and the game changed. And they ended up getting three. One via the boyhood Boca fan, Lucas Prato, which I think is just a fascinating storyline that only big derbies in South America can give you. And then an extra time, we had the controversial red card decision, um, which I think there's a, definitely a lot of split opinions on that. That saw Wilmar Barrio sent off for Boca. Juan Fernando Quintero, the man of the match, I think it's fair to say, gets his goal. Um, I thought that strike was really good and kind of indicative of what he's done all year, both for club and country. Uh, and then even in Madrid, it had to have a Libertadores ending, didn't it? With a goalie going forward, for seven minutes, basically, uh, Esteban Andrada, the Boca Juniors goalkeeper, just camping out in the river end. Uh, and then P.D. Martinez getting to walk the ball into an empty net to finish it off. Boca hit the post with with nine men on the pitch after Barrios was sent off. And, and poor Fernando Gago tore his Achilles tendon for his third time in his career, all coming against River Plate. Um, it was, in truth, a really good football match. And it's fair to be critical of the decision to move it to Spain. It's fair to be upset about that. But at the end of the day, over two legs, we've got two really good football matches. And I think the hope is that an incident like this becomes an aberration and not the new norm for the Copa Libertadores. Um, but this was a good advert, I think, for South American football on the pitch. The, everything that was off it, yeah, it would be great if we could just forget about that and pretend it didn't happen. But on the pitch, I think we can all be quite pleased with what we saw Tom, did you think River deserved it over the two legs? Tom, the River fan, that is, I should say. <laughs> you want my neutral opinion on this? Uh, I possibly marginally. I think one of the most um, justified things that happened was that it went to extra time because it really was a, a clash of the heavyweights, and it, it was difficult to split the two teams. So I think the fact that it went to extra time was fitting and probably inevitable I, I did think in the entire week before the game that it would I was planning personally for extra time I, I did think we were going to get that extra half an hour um, and yeah the game just hinged on that those those fine margins and it was the red card in this case for Barrios which when it happened I thought it was the correct decision and then when I started to watch the TV and see a lot of replays and a lot of discussion, I realized that, yeah, a lot of people didn't think it was worth a, a second yellow card, which is what he got. Um, so, yeah, but th that was the difference in the end, because as soon as Boca went down to 10 men and they had to play, I think it was the entire extra time with, with 10 men. I think Barrios was sent off about two or three minutes into extra time. So 
with that man advantage, River really just turned the screw. They just uh, held on to possession and really wore Boca down, really tired them. And you could sense it coming uh, in the bar I was in. People started to say, you know, we have to win this in extra time because psychologically, we will, River will feel like they have lost the chance, the good chance to win this game in before penalties. And psychologically, it would give Boca a great boost if they got through to the penalties. They would go into that that shootout with the psychological edge because they're the ones surviving here. So I think from a River point of view, it was important to, to get that goal when they were on top in the extra time. Um, but no, what a, what a great clash. I just agree with you really, Austin. It was 210 minutes of uh, just intense, passionate football and the whole tie was on a knife edge for... Those entire 210 minutes, you know, we were in the 210th minute of the tie. Boca uh, down to nine men, but they're still putting the pressure on, searching for that equalising goal. They send the goalie forward and, you know, they have this corner, which, you know, if they score it, then we go to the penalty shootout and the game was 2-1 at this stage. So even in the 210th minute when Boca were two men down, we still didn't know who was going to win this cup. And I think that was just a testament to what a, a great clash of the clash of the titans to to use a, a phrase that we we've saw over the last two games tom was was that the first time you took a breath over the entire two legs when pt martinez walked it into an empty net <laughs> i i was sort of i couldn't really say anything i just had my hands on my head i was just completely astonished at what we were seeing you know the the other goals were all fairly normal things to see in, in the context of a football match or a cup final but just to watch someone run the length of the, the empty pitch in the Bernabeu and tap the ball into an empty net to, to win the Copa Libertadores is just something that even even in Hollywood they don't write scripts like that. It was one of the one of the most astonishing things I've seen on a football field, I think. And it was fitting as well that it was Pitti Martinez to to put the final dagger into Boca. He's often been the guy who's who's really punished them over the over the years and and they'll be glad to see him off looks like to uh, Atlanta but yeah I thought I thought he deserved that goal he's had a really fantastic tournament um, and and I agree as well with Tom I think uh, the I think River did edge it it was there was not much to call but beforehand and certainly after the 90 minutes it was very equal I, th- I thought Boca did well in the first half I thought that their their midfield of Barrios, Nandes and Perez just really didn't allow River to get forward at all and you had Villa and and Pavon dropping quite deep and helping out, just kind of looking to hit on the counter-attack, which is what they did so well for that first goal. Um, I mean, yeah, Nandez especially, I thought was was probably Boca's best player, and, and that pass was just absolutely perfect. Um, and Benedetto, well, until Prato also scored, he, he was the first uh, player to score in both legs of a final since 2010, and then Prato goes and does it as well. And I think he's one of the first players, second player ever to score in each leg of the semis and both finals as well. So Benedetto looked like he was going to make the difference there. He had that, you know, now infamous uh, look towards Montiel, who kind of barged into him after he scored. And, and now is like the source of many memes and, and a lot of mirth from, from River fans. But I think more so than... Barrios going off I think it was actually for me the turning point in the game was um, that sort of five minute period where Quintero came on for River and Benedetto went off for Boca 
ever since that change or those changes happened, I think Boca lost their way and River were able to get more of a stranglehold um, on the game, not not only because of Quintero's magical ability to, to find space and find teammates, but also he was able to free up uh, Fernandez, uh, Palacios, a lot of the other River players were able to get further forward, whereas Boca, with the lack of mobility of uh, Ramon Juanchope Juan Avila and and then obviously the, the injuries and changes that came afterwards, um, I think that's where the game swung for me personally. Do you think they should have kept Benedetto on longer than they did? Because I think I can see why they made the change. Because coming off of a long-term injury, to expect a player to go 90 or, or 120 minutes of Benedetto's caliber, I think it could have been difficult. But I think you're exactly right. It did change the match. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. Because obviously he's been used off the bench as an impact player. And he was tiring. But at the same time, I think even a... A tiring Benedetto was was causing the River defence a few more problems, and I mean, if you are going to change him, maybe you bring on someone who's maybe not necessarily a, such such a focal point, but someone who's able to to get into interesting spaces like Zarate or you know maybe even Tevez. He might have been more effective at, at that point, and then you know the the changes afterwards with Gargo coming on and really unsurprisingly getting injured, and and then having to bring on Jara. Um, who's you know usually plays at right back, but was more in defensive midfield. Um, it just kind of all, all those kind of changes I think showed the, the key difference between the two managers, which again is is, is probably for for two really good squads that are, that are nice nice and deep in terms of talent. Deciding factor I think it's probably the quality of the management and and those those key changes and key tactical switches that allowed. You know, players like Kindero just to find a bit more room when, you know, instead of Perez and and Nandez and Barrios, they're kind of coming up against a a midfield of Gago and Jara. It's, you know, those little little things. And as as brilliant as Kindero's goal was, I think maybe if you had one of those aforementioned midfielders on, they might have closed them down a little bit quicker. Maybe that's being harsh because it it was a fantastic goal. And I'm sure Simon appreciated his... uh, Colombian uh, doing doing the business. <laughs> yeah, it was great to see, and I could see as the play was building. I could say, well, if he if he gets the ball there, he's got a bit of space. If he just does a little quick touch, <clears throat> and he perfectly executed it. it. Was it was great to see? I think it was very interesting this game as well. Um, it's it felt as the game opened up and there was more space. It really benefited River. Um, in the first half, Boca kept things very cl- uh, very tight, and it's interesting as well. There were spells in the game where it looked like. You couldn't see where a river goal was coming from. And then in the second half, you couldn't really see where a Boca goal was coming from. Obviously, uh, River had to switch up again tactically because there was no Santos Borre, who in a kind of tight competitive game was a really useful outlet, someone to kind of uh, occupy the defenders and maybe open up a bit of space. He was obviously missing. Um, but And Boca kept things very tight to begin with. There were spells as well when Barrios would receive the ball very deep and there wasn't really many options on because it was such a compact game. Um, and you do men- did mention as well the wingers really tucked in well. So I think as the game was very disciplined and tight in the first half, it, it suited Boca. But then as things started opening up and there was more space, Martinez on the left was very, very good and always felt like he had the beating of his fullback. That was very important for River. 
uh, a team that doesn't necessarily isn't defined by its pace and directness, but having that option always available uh, on the left to, to go up against the fullback and, and cause a bit of panic was very useful. And as you mentioned, Quintero as well. Interesting for me that he played so deep, um, found himself further forward as the move progressed, but he would always receive it very, very deep. And it's not even just his final passes, it's the crispness of his simple passes. Um, there, there's a pass which, you know, if you look at statistics, it's a pass that's made and it reaches the player and that's great. But the the the, the precision, the crispness of that pass that always allows the player to just open their body up or it's played just in front, or, you know, it's it's not a difficult pass. But if it's played so perfectly, it really does give more options to the to the player receiving. Um, it was a really interesting game. You know, I think River are the better team, um, but Boca were very organised and it, it was very well managed in the first half. I think if there was going to be the opportunity to play some open football, creative football, I always had the sense that River were more suited to that. But it did look in the first half that Boca may be able to, to control it and there was a very disciplined performance. Uh, the wingers in Pavon and Villa were always dangerous. Um, but yeah, it just felt as the game was evolving and as space was opening up and as River were getting more confident on the ball, and I think Quintero was a big part of that in midfield, uh, it really helps. The red card as well. Again, my first response was, okay, he stood in the ankle, but that's an, an unintentional consequence of the tackle. But then you look at the the strength of the, the, the block, and I do think it is a block. I can see why. I can see why. I don't think standing on the ankle made it a foul, but he did jump before he then tried to block the ball, which I can see why it's kind of an aggressive act uh, and perhaps justified the yellow card. Worth noting as well that that's the first time Barros has ever been sent off for Boca. So even though he's, you know, occupies that defensive midfield role, it, he's not a dirty player. Even though, you know, maybe some England fans might think differently. Um, but yeah, I I thought it was one that the fact that Palacios was kind of sliding in and on the floor, just the the aesthetics of sort of Barrios sort of jumping up, even though he stopped short, I thought, I just thought the way it looked, it looked like jumped on the prone player on the floor and it looked a lot worse than it was. And you can, you can appreciate why the ref did send him off. But obviously from that point on, you felt there was only going to be one winner. And I think one thing that's interesting about yesterday's match, um, was the refereeing. And, and I think we saw a drastic difference just in the way that it was officiated from that first leg with the Chilean referee and then with Andres Cunha, I think a referee who's frankly been at the center of a lot of controversy. You'll remember the the Raul Ruiz Diaz goal in the Copa America Centenario that he allowed to stand, even though he pretty clearly hit it with his hand. And it's so weird. But in a match that is that tight between those two close teams, it's little moments, like even a couple of officiating decisions, that can make the difference. And it does kind of come down to managers and officials because that's just how tight those two teams were. And I think to kind of close this out, it's very clear that this is a win that will mean a lot for River Plate. Um, it's going to go to the Court of Arbitration and Sport. We'll see what happens with that appeal. I think it's fair to say that we're all in agreement that we don't see Boca winning that appeal, but this is the Libertadores. You never quite know. Uh, but Tom, I did want to bring you in. Logistically for River Plate, this is an important win because, one, they're now guaranteed a spot in next year's Copa Libertadores, which they were not beforehand. And now, two, they've got a shot to go to the Club World Cup and perhaps get themselves a chance at what is a staggering Real Madrid side. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, um, like you say, Rivers' league performance was quite lackluster last year, so they only qualified for the Sudamericana. 
So as if there wasn't enough to play for already in the final, River were playing for their, their ticket to the 2019 Libertadores. So obviously now they will be playing in that, uh, which is huge really for for the team and for Gachado as a manager because his project since he came in in 2014 is really about these continental matches. You know, the, the domestic games are sort of... Um, you often see a, a second string River team play in those games so that Cacharo can keep all his best players fit for the Libertadores game or Sudamericana if that's what we're playing in so yeah it, it's huge for, for him to be able to, to play in the Libertadores next year and like you say now the, the Club World Cup is on the horizon uh, River will be flying from the players stayed in Madrid by the way they didn't come back to Argentina they stayed in Madrid and they will be flying to the Middle East on Wednesday. And like you say, it's the poorest Real Madrid team there has been for, well, I don't even know how many years now, definitely at least five or six years. So it, it gives them a shot at it, yeah. And, and like we all know, the South Americans take this tournament very seriously, got, which might sound strange. They've got to get to the final first. That's they have, and, yeah. that's, and that's not proven that easy for South American sides in, in recent editions. But they've gotten a really fortunate draw in that, in that sense, um, because I think the, the two best non-European South American teams are generally from CONCACAF and Asia. That's certainly the case this year. And both Kashima Antlers, the representatives from Asia, and Chivas, the representatives from Mexico and from CONCACAF, are on the other side of the draw. So they'll have to go through Real Madrid. So River Plate semifinal will be against either the Tunisian side, ES Tunis, the side from New Zealand, Team Wellington, who are essentially a semi-pro side, or the host side, Alain, who I think would probably be favored to make that semifinal. So it's all broken really, really nicely for this to be the first time since 2012 that a South American side could lift that Club World Cup. Yeah, um, I'd agree. I mean, you know, Real Madrid's... I'd say motivation is probably not what it is for the teams from the other continents as well. I mean, you saw last year, I remember the image of, of Real Madrid beating Gremio, I think 1-0, and the final whistle was blown and the players didn't even raise their hands in the air. No one no one in South America could believe it. They're saying, look at this, they've just won the World Club, Club World Cup and they did not even particularly bothered about celebrating this is it's so strange because in South America this tournament is viewed with such importance and such prestige that the fans really get up for this you know they, they count it as as big or bigger than winning the Libertadores so yeah who knows with a, a staggering Real Madrid side and and a, and a quite slick Riverside with that extra motivation who knows there, there could even be a surprise if those two teams were to make the final so let's not get ahead of ourselves Given Real Madrid are doing so poorly, they might have extra motivation to prove a point. And with uh, Solari in charge, it could be a, an all-Argentinian managerial final. But yeah, I certainly give River a, a decent chance. And, and uh, Gajardo's proven himself an excellent cup competition manager. And he's, well, I think he's up to nine titles now as a manager. He's only 42. So yeah, I think uh, even... Even if Gajal doesn't walk away with the big prize, we, we, I can expect to see him managing in Europe in the in the not too distant future. I also saw there was some calls for him to become Argentina national team boss. Do you think that's possible at all? I'll let Tom go for it. Go for it. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your opinion as well, actually, Tom. But I'd, from my position, I would say no. Um, there's been so much 
chaos and dysfunctionality around this this current affair and this current setup that it's really um, putting off any potential candidates. Every time Simeone or Pochettino gets potentially offered the chance to, to talk highly and give encouraging words about potentially doing it in the future, they, they tend to just refuse the opportunity and just play it down and, and they're clearly not that interested. And I think Gashardo has made similar noises in the past as well. So it's not something I see in the future. I do see him at a, a European team, probably a Spanish or French team in the coming two to three years. Uh, but I think that's the the national team job, from my point of view, is probably not likely at the moment. Yeah, I th- I th- I th- personally, I think he should learn from Sam Paoli's mistake last year. Because if, if you see... Where where San Paolo's stock was before he took that Argentina job and the mess he had to work with there, and what it is now, um, yeah, I, I think it's best for him to go to a stable club in Europe. I think would probably be his best move. No, Tom Robinson. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Scaloni's going to be in charge until. Um, at least the end of the Copa America next year. So the, I think that puts to bed any any questions of whether Gajal is going to take the job in in the, in the near future. I, I think one day he will become manager, but but like you said, I think he's got higher ambitions right now. And and with the likes of top managers such as Pochettino and Simeone, the the national team job is always going to be available to them later in their career. And re- realistically, Europe. Um, is is where it's at in terms of elite level football. So, yeah, Gajalo, I think, has probably turned down the opportunity already when when they were still kind of looking at Scaloni in terms of a caretaker boss. Um, so it, it, the fact that he's probably probably uh, not going to take it now for for several years, but he's he's definitely going to be high up on the list of candidates every time there is an, an availability. So y- you never know. Okay, well. That wasn't the only Copa Libertadores final in the last week. There was also a Copa Libertadores final of the women's football um, happening in uh, Brazil, in in the Amazon, in fact, um, in the in the World Cup stadium in Ma- is it Manaus? Right? It was yeah, yeah, in Manaus and. Um, and the, and the Copa Libertadores Femenina was won by a Colombian side. A little bit of an upset in the final. Atletico Wheeler. Um, they managed to edge out Santos uh, of Brazil, who were the favourites, um, on penalties after an entertaining final. Um, Santos actually took an early lead in the game. In the game on two minutes through uh, Brenner. A great strike, but from about 20, 25 yards or so, um, flew into the corner of the net. The Colombians managed to get a slightly bizarre equaliser just after half-time to level it. Gabby Santos kind of hooking home after a Santos keeper had kind of missed the corner. Um, It it, it was a little bit bizarre to see. Um, But yeah, like I mentioned, it, it went to penalties. And Austin, it was a very decent penalty shootout, wasn't it? We were discussing... Uh, last week when we were watching it live and um, and yeah Wheeler managed to win 5-3 and I also know that you would like to highlight a couple of the star performance from this game. Yeah it was really impressive from Wheeler I think throughout the tournament because as you said I think it's maybe even more than a bit of an upset. Santos were 
have been the best women's side in Brazil this year. Uh, they're under former Brazil manager uh, Emily Lima. They rolled through this tournament in the group stage. Santos, 13 goals scored, one goal allowed. Uh, and then they ran past Colo Colo 3-0 in their semifinal. And so Wheela beat yeah. Santos in the final and then also beat the host side, Iranduba, who have been a really successful side in Brazil. Uh, Brazil national team player Andresinha, a member of that Iranduba side. And Wheela beat them on penalties in the semifinal. So a pair of really impressive penalty wins for Wheela. Yeah, and I, I watched... Uh... I watched Santos' semi-final against Colo Colo, obviously with a Chilean interest there. And, um, and I was quite impressed that Colo Colo managed to hold out for the first, uh, the first hour or so of that game. But in the, early on in the second half, um, Colo Colo hit the bar. And yeah, I keep wondering maybe if that had gone in, uh, a panic might, may have set in. But um, no, Colo Colo have been very impressive over the past few years in the women's competition. They won it, um, I think, back in 2012 it was. Uh, and they've been like consistent, decent performers um, on this stage. So, yeah, well done to them anyway. And, uh, and yeah, and well done to all the teams involved in this as well because as we've covered before on this podcast, you know, the, the funding for the women's game in South America it isn't what it should be, really, you know, as as we've already said, this was a win against the odds, and uh, now I'm going to bring Simon into the discussion because I know that he have some insight into the passion for women's football in Colombia, something we saw last year in the league up there, and something you've spoken about before on this pod, Simon. So um, maybe if you could just recap a little bit on that situation, but also what has been the reaction to this great triumph from Wheeler? Um, in Colombia. Yeah, it was very important for Colombia to reflect the success of the first couple of seasons of uh, of football in the domestic league in Colombia, which has been very impressive. We look at the first final, Santa Fe won the final, um, and it was it was, you know, a, a huge game packed out stadium in Bogota, one of the highest attendances for any domestic league game in the history of women's football, and this is 6 months into the season. So the response has been very, very positive in Colombia. Um, the clubs really bought into it in general. Uh, and the league also expanded after the first season for the second season. Um, for where Wheeler won the championship. Wheeler, again, were competitive in the first year as well. Wheeler is actually where my girlfriend's from. So I've been there quite a few times. It's a nice town. It's a... Uh, very like a desert there's a desert there but there's also lots of water it's a nice place um, but the team has been very competitive always very organised uh, Jureli uh, Rincon who's kind of the star player for them uh, very impressive but also it's just a very organised uh, unified team that's been very competitive across the first two seasons um, there's been some teams with a few more big names but I think their experience of digging out these results um, in the domestic league really set them up well uh, to be the somewhat underdogs, but it's really impressive. I think there was some disappointment that the Colombia team didn't qualify uh, for the World Cup um, after the success of the league and after the popularity. Um, so that was a slight disappointment. This is, again, is, is vindication for the work that the, the league has done. Um, as I mentioned, the league expanded. The, the league made it obligatory. Uh, I know this is something that the the Comunidad are looking at more broadly, but for teams to qualify for the Libertadores, they had to have a women's team. So Nacional um, set up a women's team for for the for the second tournament, and the league expanded. 
there is going to be a league again in 2019. There were questions as to whether it was going to happen. Um, it was kind of a tricky... It was an important win for Wheeler, both in terms of the, the club and women's football in general, but also in terms of pushing Di Major, the FA in Colombia, to really back this league. Everyone was very, very excited. And they should be. This is something that Colombia can be one of the best in the world at. Um, there's still loads and loads of work to do, but the the support for the league in the first couple of years is incredible. Uh, and the way it's been embraced, and it's something that Colombia can, you know, there's cycling and there's women's athletics and, and women's football can be something that Colombia is legitimately one of the best countries in the world at. And this is something they should really back. And they have said they're going to support the league next year. There's a big shakeup in terms of TV in Colombia, but the women's league has been included. A couple of games a week will be on this new uh, subscription channel that the league is organizing to kind of uh, help support Colombian football. We'll see if that's good or a bad thing, but the league will continue. And it's been a it's been a very very positive thing, uh, and this Wheeler team has had a very very massively important win, um, both in terms of reflecting the good work and also making it imperative for many people to see them continue. There was controversies after the tournament. Jorelli Rincon, the star player, said that we're not going to see any of this money. It's all going to go to the men's team. It looks as though at least some of that is now going to be going into the women's team. The men's and women's team are separate institutions under the same name. And there was fears that the prize money was all going to go to the men's team and the women's team weren't going to see any of it. Um, it looks as though that has been at least somewhat resolved. Also, the women's team, uh, while uh, the Libertadores finalists, in obviously uh, the men's side had private jets and were flown off to Spain. Uh, there wasn't really any support and they found themselves waiting seven hours in Venezuela for their, for their flight connection. It's little things like this. You know, I understand that maybe the money isn't quite there in general in, in women's football and, and that's a process but you know little things like that for at least a final you know at least put a bit of money into making it a good experience for everyone involved so a little bit of disappointment in that but i think again that just strengthened the the voice in colombia in terms of getting behind these 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 women and these sides that represent colombia so well and in general it's been a very very positive thing but there's always pressures to to cut back and uh it looks as though public support is pushing uh, the continuation of this very, very important step in women's football in Colombia. Uh, sorry, Austin, I just realised that I cut you off a little bit early there. And, um, and yeah, um, I know that you just wanted to highlight some players, so I'll let you do that. Yeah, no worries. Very quickly on, on what Simon was saying, you know, the fact that the prize money for Atletico Wheeler could go to their men's club is certainly frustrating. But I think the fact that it was only 55,000 US dollars is the most frustrating part. Um, you know, Conmobile is an organization that that makes a lot of money and and it's just small steps like that. Big steps, maybe even too. But just making things more legitimate for women's football in South America. Because as Simon said, there's a big opportunity for just about every country in South America with the right funding, the right investment in women's football. World Cups would not be that difficult to qualify for, considering how neglected it's been by other countries. So you'd like to see countries like Colombia putting some money into it and having a team be successful like Atletico Huila. As far as some players who impressed in the Copa Libertadores, as I said, Santos were the most impressive team. Uh, it's a real shame that Emily Lima didn't get more of a chance with the Brazilian national team. She was sacked pretty quickly after being appointed so that Vidal, who, who led them in 2015 at the World Cup, could get his job back. 
Um, and that's frustrating considering how good football Santos played throughout that tournament. Chu, their striker, scored a, a pair of goals and is somebody who's been in and out of the Brazil national team conversation recently. I'd look for her to maybe get a chance in these upcoming friendlies. I'd look for a couple of those Santos players, Brenna as well, and maybe Alana, two players who, who both scored a, a couple of goals in this tournament to maybe get a chance for Brazil looking towards that World Cup. Andresinha Freiranduba, she's a player who's played for Brazil, was in the United States playing in the NWSL for Houston Dash, came back and played in Manaus. Uh, really the area I think that has most embraced women's football in Brazil, uh, in Manaus. It was great that they got to host this tournament. I think they did a pretty good job of supporting it. So Andresinha is somebody who is impressive as well. And then as Simon said, Brincone, she was very impressive in that final match. Just a very classic number 10 uh, really good service to her teammates, really strong play, very great leadership in the midfield. Uh, she was a player that really impressed me. And I think just as a whole, I was thoroughly entertained by the final between Santos and Wheela. And so often the conversation with women's football is about what it's not and what it doesn't get as far as support and as far as money and controversy. We've seen that with the Ballon d'Or winner being at the center of just a ridiculous controversy this last week. And that's all fair. And those are all points that need to be made. But also just watch women's football and enjoy it for what it is. There's a World Cup coming up and it's really good. It's really entertaining. It's high level. It's high quality. Uh, and this match was a great advert for that, where if you sat down and watched Santos and Wheeler play in the Copa Libertadores Femenina final, you were really entertained. It was up and down, chances both ways, could have been more than just the two goals that were scored, and a really entertaining penalty shootout. So I think a tip of the cap to those two teams in particular for the football that they played throughout the tournament and in the final. Couldn't agree more, Austin. Um, before we move on, um, I just want to bring something back into the conversation that Simon said. Now, if South American, if the South American football show ever branches out into other areas of interest, for example, a South American travel show, I'm not sure, Simon, you're my guy, describing Wheeler as <laughs> a, a, a desert with a little bit of water. <laughs> no, like, okay, look, I, I wasn't doing it just, I didn't want to get bogged down in the geography, but like picture cactuses and rolling deserts, think like Wild West, but then you've also got some big reservoirs, there's also some old like indigenous statue things, uh, there's a nightclub, uh, which is <laughs> overly expensive, um, because there's there's strangely high number of rich people in we. I don't know, it's nice, I like going there, it's cool, I went swimming in a big river, it was fun. Robbo, you you work for a travel company now. I, I do. Uh, if I ever send anyone to Wheeler, I'll be like telling them all about the big, uh, big statue things and the nightclub. <laughs> and the yeah, desert yeah, with when, some water. Maybe you have to end up mentioning there's a nightclub somewhere, you know, then there's not much to do. Yeah, Olay, it's called. It's called Olay. I watched Columbia play there once, and also that guy who sang that song sang it there. So... Everything, everything you could possibly... It was really expensive. It was like 25 quid to get in. Anyway, Ole, maybe they can sponsor the podcast. I, I guess I guess Simon is getting back to the football. I guess it's a little bit of a, a shame really now, you know, given Colombia have had this success on, on continental level, um, club level, um, that they haven't qualified for next year's World Cup, which we're, which we're about to discuss. Has, has there been sort of much chat about that in the in the wake of this victory? Uh, no, I think this is kind of covered up for the fact that there was a, quite a lot of disappointment in terms of we thought we were great 
everything looked like it was going in the right direction. We've had this great success and yet we still can't qualify for the for the World Cup. So it, it did kind of set things back a little bit, but I think this has put things back on track, which is very, very important. Uh, and, you know, I think the, the potential for Colombia is not only making Colombian women's football better, but also making South American football better. We've seen players from the Caribbean, players from Venezuela, players from across the continent playing for professional football in Colombia. Uh, obviously, things can improve. There needs to be more money, etc., etc. But having a competitive televised league where players can showcase their abilities is great for the entire continent. Uh, and it's just a great source of pride for Colombia that this potentially could be uh, where the league is based in Colombia. Okay, so let's let's move on to talk about that Women's World Cup draw. Um, Austin, I know that you watched it as well. Um, I thought it was. Um, it, it was better than most World Cup draws, anyway. <laughs> I've watched it. it. It seemed to flow quite nicely. Excellent presenting by Alex Scott, I thought. Um, and yeah, it, it wasn't a bad. Uh, it wasn't a bad draw for for the three South American nations. It could have been worse. Um, obviously, Chile and Argentina being in that pot four, which is the which is the weakest part, they were always going to get fairly tricky ties but I think you were quite happy that it, it kind of worked out fairly well for Brazil who were in pot two no yeah I think Brazil were the big winners for the South American sides um, they drew an Australia team out of pot one that eliminated them uh, from the World Cup in 2015 but as far as pot one teams are concerned they didn't draw the United States which is a team that has given Brazil a lot of issues maybe they didn't get a Canada side that they would have liked to go up against but I think they'll be fine with drawing Australia and then as far as pot three and four were concerned, I thought Brazil were, were pretty fortunate. Uh, there had to be a European team in their group. And so the fact that that European team then came out of pot three in Italy, uh, first World Cup since 1999 for the Italians, they'll be quite happy with that. And then drawing Jamaica, who I think is probably the weakest team in this World Cup. Huge, huge credit to Jamaica for making the World Cup against a lot of odds that were stacked against them in CONCACAF. They won a penalty shootout against Panama to qualify for that World Cup. But they're probably going to be really up against it. Uh, the athleticism may give Brazil a little bit of trouble, but Brazil should get out of this group pretty easily, probably in the second position, maybe even in first if they can upset Australia. And even if they finish in third, that can be enough to get you out in the Women's World Cup because there are 24 teams and 16 end up making the knockout rounds. As for the other two sides, uh, Argentina... Not a great draw for them. Uh, England is a really good side. Japan have made the last two World Cup finals and they came out of pot two. And then Scotland is an up and coming uh, nation in in European women's football. Uh, that England-Scotland match should be pretty fun to open up Group D. I think it's going to be really, really difficult for Argentina, especially because I think they're probably the weakest of the three South American sides. They were the ones that had to come through the playoff against Panama. Uh, but the fact that they made it to the World Cup at all is a huge achievement, and hopefully being in the World Cup can can get some energy behind women's football in Argentina. I think a country that has really kind of lagged behind some of the other countries in South America. And then Chile, Adam, I think at first glance, this looks really difficult. Um, the United States, obviously the best team in the world, uh, a side that beat Chile 7-0 on aggregate over two friendlies earlier, is not a great draw. Um, and I think the key for Chile is probably going to end up being what they can do goal differential wise against the United States. But Sweden out of pot two is a bogey side for good teams. But I think Chile can probably hang in a match with Sweden. They might be able to nick a point there. 
And even if they lose, it's probably only going to be by a goal or two. And then they got the weakest side out of pot three, a Thailand side that haven't won in six. They've been pretty dreadful since Asian World Cup qualifying. So that's a big boost to Chile. And that match comes last for Chile. So they'll know kind of what they will need to do. And being in Group F, they will play last. So Chile going into that Thailand match will know exactly what they need to advance out of their group. That might be a 4-0 win. But honestly, that's not out of the realm of possibility. And the fact that they've got a good keeper in Christiana Endler, I think will help them kind of hang around in that United States and Sweden match. And I give Chile a little bit of a chance to get out of this group F. It's not as bad as it might look on first glance, I think. Yeah, basically the, the line coming out of the Chile camp following that draw is basically difficult but not impossible. Um, so there's obviously a little bit of confidence there that they can achieve what you say, basically beat, beat Thailand and they, they could well get something against Sweden and the United States. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Thailand, you know, that they do have some World Cup experience already under their belts, don't they? So I think that, that could be a factor. You, you've got to remember that this is the first World Cup for this, uh, this group of Chilean women. So it's going to, yeah, it's going to be a very emotional time. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's... It, it, it's, it's going to be a very new experience for, for them all to be, um, to be camped out there in, in, in France for, for a month um, Indeed. But I think one of the things that will work in Chile's favor is that Thailand match is their third and final match. So you give them a shot to kind of get their feet under them. Opening match against Sweden, if there are some jitters, they may be able to play their way through this. And Adam, the fact that they got beat 7-0 by the United States on aggregate over two friendlies isn't great. But I think the fact that they've played the United States will at least help them not be kind of shell-shocked. Because the Americans tend to do that to teams. In CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, they scored a goal within the first 10 minutes of every match they played. So having seen the sheer athleticism and ability of that United States women's national team, I think that will work in Chile's favor. It's not the best draw they could have hoped for, but I think there's some hope there. Yeah, I think you know you pointed it out in your article you wrote on the on the website, which is uh, which is well worth a read. Um, but also just now as well, you know, Enda in goal for Chile is the star player of the Chilean national team, and she is going to be very busy, I'd imagine, in those first two matches. Chile's chances of pulling off an upset and getting out of this group probably depends on on her form. Um, she plays for PSG in Europe. Um, she's a regular in that side, so you know she's got good pedigree. She's she played in big matches in, in, in club football and and in international football, um, and yeah. And as captain of the side, I'd expect her to to lead the way as she's done so brilliantly um, so far this year when uh, Chile managed to finish second to Brazil in the Copa America to to qualify for this tournament. Um, Argentina who you mentioned earlier, they had to go through a playoff, didn't they? We mentioned that on the last pod, I think. Um, they beat Panama in a, in a two-leg inter, intercontinental playoff. So, yeah, Chile, I, you know, they beat Argentina comfortably in that Copa America. So they do go into this as South America's second-best team, I think it's fair to say, especially you know, with these friendlies they've organised in, in, in the wake of that Copa America uh, success. They've, they've managed to basically organise friendlies against USA, 
who are probably the best team in the world, first or second. World Cup next year will prove it either way. Um, South Africa, who also managed to qualify for this World Cup. Um, they got a couple of draws against them. Um, they look like they could be a very handy side. And then last month, they, they managed to pull off a shock victory away in Australia. And, um, and I think that proves the capability of this side on their day. They did lose the second match against Australia heavily. But yeah, I think on their day, Chile can definitely give Sweden problems, like you say. And, um, and, and I think that Thailand, from, from what I understand, is, is a winnable match as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going with the same line as the, as the, as the, as the Chile uh, management and players. You know, difficult but not, not impossible. And very quickly, just to wrap up, Adam, improvement is what I've seen from Chile since the Copa America Femenina and since those United States matches. And I think that's really encouraging because they'll still have some time before this World Cup. The more that they've been able to actually play together and play against high level competition, I think the better they've looked. So that certainly works in their favor as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, they've made huge strides, as we saw in that Australia match, especially the first one from where they were at against the USA where they struggled to get out their own half over the, over the two matches. Um, I'm very optimistic um, going into next year, and, and I'm very much looking forward to watching it. It's, uh, it, it should be entertaining. Uh, Tom, um, Tom, uh, Tom Nash, this is... I, I, I just want to... I don't know if you followed this at all, but what I wouldn't mind knowing, you know, with the Copa Libertadores final going on, did you see any coverage of this of this draw in Argentina? Uh, no, it's been very thin on the ground. I mean, it was mentioned by some of the sports papers and sports sites, but yeah, it, I mean, you guys touched on it in your explanation there. It's it's got some way to go in in Argentina. It's still a little bit uh, behind in terms of its attitude towards the women's game. So, and obviously, coming at the time it did during the biggest club game in Argentine football history for the men's uh, sport. Um, obviously, yeah, everything else, even the men's Superliga has been drowned out by all the noise around River Boca in the last few weeks. Unfortunately, that's just the way the media works in Argentina. Yeah, as I imagined then. Okay, now we're moving on to discuss the first leg of the Copa Sudamericana final between Atletico Junior and Atletico Paranense of Brazil. It finished 1-1, a result that isn't particularly great for the Colombians. There's no away goals in in this Sudamericana final, like the Libertadores final, no away goals. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not an ideal result. Like the Colombians surely would have been looking to take a lead to defend to Brazil. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it, but this is the first of four uh, finals <laughs> Junior played in the, the couple of couple of weeks um, with the Sudamericano and the Colombian League final both being two legs. So this was the first of four, um, and they played quite well. Uh, obviously, uh, not an ideal result, but given the circumstances, not terrible either. Um, Paranaense were very impressive, very organised, um, and Junior had a lot of possession. They used it fairly well, um, but there was always that threat that this Paranaense side could go to the other end and you know Junior's defence at times has been a bit sloppy they seem to have found quite a decent partnership in uh, Jefferson Gomez and uh, Perez at the back 
Um, and with the with the midfield a little bit more balanced with San, James Sanchez and Novaes freeing up Candijo to break forward, um, it was a decent performance from Junior. A big miss was Teofilo Gutierrez. Um, at times, I on the pod questioned him as a as an out and out number nine, but with the with the pace and creativity of Barrera and and Diaz, it's quite nice to have someone who's a little bit slower to slow things down and maybe pick that key pass. They went with uh, Johnny Gonzalez, who's kind of a tireless attacking midfielder, winger, central midfielder, plays everywhere, but kind of fills the space with his hard work and he's and his fairly pacey as well, uh, but not really an ideal option as a centre-forward. He actually popped up with the goal. Um, Paranaense, on a counter-attack, scored a good goal kind of out of nowhere in a way, but they were always pressing to to make something happen. And then a quick response from, uh, from Junior with uh, Johnny Gonzalez acrobatically pouncing on a loose ball in the box. Um, so... I think Junior played fairly well, probably maybe edged this game, but Paranaense always looked quite comfortable and always looked potentially dangerous as well. So a fairly decent final, um, first leg. Good atmosphere in uh, Barranquilla. At times, Junior attendances have been down this year. They were good last year, but not so good this year. But everyone got out there for the final and it was a great atmosphere and and a good game of football. Uh, they were pressing at the end to get that, that goal to take the lead to Brazil. Couldn't didn't happen in the end. It's going to be very tough. But uh, I was quite impressed by Paranaense. Austin, I mean, what, what do you what do you think of this game and Paranaense in general? Yeah, I think the big moment for Junior. Obviously, you mentioned they had some chances at the end, but they had that penalty that Rafa Perez stepped up and he did the thing where you just hit it as hard as you can down the middle and hope that the goalie moves. Only he hit it so hard that it rattled off the crossbar and back. And like I think what was said was that's the penalty that your eighth taker in the shooter should take in the shootout should take. Uh, and he was their penalty taker. So that was a big missed opportunity for Junior. And yeah, this has been a really solid Atletico Paranaense side this year in Brazil. They started very poorly in the league. They were down around the relegation zone. They fired their manager, Fernando Denise, who kind of was was doing a, a new age project, if you will. And they brought in Thiago Nunez as their interim manager. And he stuck because he did really well for them. Um, so. I think they did well in this final. They did well in the league. They finished mid-table. They got out of the relegation trouble and kind of coasted into the finish. Uh, and they'll have a really good atmosphere for this second leg. The Arena da Baixada is not one of the most, you know, the loudest or most passionate atmospheres you'll find in South America. But it's a really difficult place to play because for Paranaense, they have the artificial pitch. And that's not something you see very often in South America. So that's really difficult for teams to kind of deal with a closed roof stadium will will definitely amplify the noise and then you've got the crowd which hasn't had a lot to cheer for in recent years as far as titles is concerned so this is a big deal for them their only way to get into the libertadores next year so we can maybe get eight brazilian teams in the libertadores uh i think this second leg final is set up really nicely and it should be pretty fun simon is uh tio gutierrez going to be available for the second leg and also you spoke briefly about Junior's uh, heavy schedule um, at the moment with the final of the Colombian League as well um, in, the, in, their, in their schedule over the next uh, few days. Um, maybe tell us a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, so they, their second final game, the, the first leg of the Colombian League Championship against Independiente Medellin. And it was a good, good night for Junior. It didn't necessarily look like it was going that way uh, in the first half. Uh, Medellin looked fairly, fairly organised, fairly compact, and and fairly comfortable. Medellin played with 
a couple of, uh, of strikers, a, a kind of a more conservative midfield. It, I kind of thought that maybe Medellin could get the result, and I was proved quite wrong because Junior ended up winning 4-1. Uh, a combination of a resurgent Junior in the second half with something to prove uh, with their final home game of the year before they go off for those uh, away legs of their two finals. Uh, and they came out in the second half looking very, very good. Goals from Diaz, the, the Colombian international, who's very sharp, one of the best strikers in the league this year. In Colombia, uh, a forward who's, who's very quick and direct, but has a good shot as well. He he put them ahead. Um, and then goals from James Sanchez, Teofilo Gutierrez scored one. And then one late on, Marlon Piedraita. Uh, Medellin kind of fell apart. They got one back in Herman Cano to make it 2-1. But, uh, and that would have been a decent result, obviously, going back to Medellin. But some defensive errors late on from Medellin and... Both these sides kind of look like they may have a collapse in them and, and the collapse this time came for Medellin. But lots of credit for Junior. Um, in a game where they were struggling to to make things happen and it looked as though maybe the simpler approach of Medellin, who are a bit more direct, might be be enough. But but Junior really made it click in the second half and a very impressive display. You mentioned Teofilo Gutierrez. He did limp off in that game and we have to see he's... Uh, he was a kind of a surprise inclusion for that for that final of the the domestic league. It was thought that maybe they'd wait for him to be available for the for the second legs, uh, give him a bit more of a rest. They played their strongest team against Medellin, and while the result is is ideal, uh, we'll have to see what impact it had in terms of tiredness for that tricky away leg in Brazil coming up. Uh, they can probably rest the, some players for the second leg of the league championship, have with a three goal advantage, but. That's not really going to help them much because after that game, they're all off on their holidays, albeit uh, shorter holidays than they were promised by the Colombian League. That's been a bit controversial as well. Um, the league decided to push this game back a couple of weeks to to give uh, Junior a bit more space, uh, in theory, for the for the continental title. And people aren't very happy of missing out on their Christmas again. But uh, yeah, still lots to play for for Junior. Two massive games. This has put them in a great position to win the domestic league which is great but uh, it would also be great if they can win this continental championship which is coming up on Wednesday night so depending how busy we are in this getting this pod out it may have already happened but uh, yeah very interesting finish of the year for Junior. Okay now let's move across to Argentina where Tom Robinson has uh, has been keeping abreast of the situation there. The Copper Argentina last week saw a dramatic uh, penalty shootout between Rosario Central and my mind's gone blank. Gimna- Gimnasia y Lima La Plata. Yeah, Gimnasia. Um, and uh, and it was Rosario Central who won four one on penalties. Um, some pretty poor penalties from Gimnasia in 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 that final. Apart from the Venezuelan youngster Hurtado, who managed to coolly slot his away, but. Um, but yeah, the, the rest of the Gimnasia players failed. And, uh, and Rosario Central, after years of heartbreak, managed to, managed to finally get their hands on the Copa Argentina. Indeed, they did. It's, it's been one of the enduring storylines of the Copa Argentina since it was reintroduced in, in 2011. Um, you know, Central have got to the final... Well, this is the fourth time they got to the final and they finally managed to get their hands on that elusive Copa Argentina 
uh, trophy. They they got to the semi-finals last year as well. So realistically, they've been they've been close the last five years, and and certainly um, the, when they lost to Boca in twenty fifteen, that was an absolute uh, scandal. They were absolutely robbed of that final. And and last year they or the in twenty sixteen they lost four three to River, um, and yeah, you just felt like. Central were never going to get that title. So, yeah, very happy for them that they managed to do it. Um, Zampedri with with the first goal, he sort of tried a, a nice sort of swiveling bicycle kick almost um, that kind of was well saved, but he managed to bundle in the, the rebound. And then Gimnasia equalised through Faravelli. Um, really nicely taken goal, actually. Swept in very nicely. And at that point... Obviously, all the Rosario fans were were fearing the worst. But when they got to penalties, um, they had big old Nesta Ortegosa to to step up. And he's you know for anyone who hasn't seen him, he's he's got a very distinct penalty style where he he runs almost from yeah from outside the area, really straight. And he's one of the best penalty takers in world football. He used to, even used to um, when he was younger, sort of hustled. Um, penalty shootout competitions um to, to win money um so he's he, he's the the man you want to to take your first penalty santiago silva the, the furious bald-headed uruguayan striker blazed one over and at, at that point you kind of you thought that central were definitely going to get it and ruben paro and caruzzo all put their penalties away very nicely so yeah they'll be in the libertadores next year it's, and um because um, gimnasia i've just remembered they actually beat River, didn't they, in the semis of, on, on penalties, penalties as well? As well. So, yeah, that man Urtal, um, the young, yeah, young Venezuelan, as you mentioned, who, who'd been a bit of a contract dispute, and he's he's finally playing again. Um, you know, he got the penalty this time, but it, it couldn't couldn't drag them through. But um, yeah, uh, really, really interesting end to uh, a competition that's sort of now beginning to get its own mythology and it's starting to get more attention I've, I feel and, and Central are definitely key to that I'll come back to you in a, in a sec Tom to discuss the league situation there in Argentina, there's a couple of interesting stories developing there um, that I want to get your opinion on, um, but I know that Austin you also caught the, the final with this um, Copa Argentina so yeah, go ahead what, what, was, what was your take on it all? I'm just happy to see Rosario Central back in the Copa Libertadores. I think they have one of the best stadiums in South America. Uh, Palmeiras were in their group back in 2016. Uh, and that Rosario Central team, I think, won a lot of hearts in South America uh, under Eduardo Cudet. Uh, they were perhaps maybe even the second best team in that competition, but fell to Atlético Nacional in the quarterfinal. So I think it'll be great to see them back. And I thought this match was, was pretty exciting. Good to see another cup competition doing well. I'm quite happy that Argentina chose to bring that back. And and Tom, it, there in the Argentinian league, it's unlike a lot, unlike pretty much all the leagues, I think in, in, in South America, it's, it's only at the halfway point, isn't it? Um, well, not even, is it, is it halfway? About halfway, well, it pretty much. Depend, it pretty much is pitch. now. River have only played eleven games, whilst Racing at the top have played fifteen. So yeah, <laughs> it, it depends um, who you look at. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to discuss uh, the the team in second place, uh, Defensa y Justicia, who under Sebastián Becasechi, who failed here in um, in Chile with Universidad de Chile. 
quite a spectacular fail. He was sort of Sampaoli's right-hand man for many years, and that is one of the reasons why Lou made him um, their, their boss, um, their number one, um, hoping that he would he would bring the same effect Sampaoli did on the side. But it was very much a learning curve for him whilst he was at Lou, and uh, it all went wrong. He threw all kinds of tantrums on the sideline every time they lost, and... Um, and yeah, at that point, I'm thinking, oh, he's, he's not cut out for, for management. You know, he's a classic. He's better at being a number two. But he, he's gone on to, to, to prove many people wrong here, I think. Well, certainly at the moment, you know, this is his kind of second spell, isn't it? With, uh, with uh, Defensa Justicia. The first one got broken up pretty abruptly, didn't it, by um, Argentina appointing... Uh, Sampali and Bekasechi. Um So, yeah, what do you think? They're six points behind Racing with having played a having played a game less. They're the only unbeaten side in the league. Um, do you think that they're a genuine title contender, or are you worried that maybe one or two of their better players might be snapped up before the before the um, before the season gets underway again at the end of January? Yeah, they're a really intriguing club. You know, they've they only came up a few years ago, but they've 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 got a real history of of trying progressive managers. And, and like you said, you know, they're only six points off the top. If they win their next game, they'll only be three. They have, they've yet to lose a game. Um, they've got one of the best defensive records in the league, and they and they get plenty of uh, players forward and and have a lot of uh, attempts on goal. So at the moment, I mean, why not? This Racing are the only club that look like strong title contenders but Defensio Justicia are in the mix and I think maybe the one thing that might not help them massively is, is the fact that they are although they're unbeaten they, they have got six draws from their 14 games which which might see them struggle to sort of maintain uh, maintain that and if they can turn a few of those draws into wins then then they're right up there but certainly there's no real um, rivals obviously with Boca and River being distracted by the Libertadores, Independiente, uh, you know, there or thereabouts. But we're seeing a lot of underdog teams like Atletico Tucumán, Huracán, and, and even Vélez um, sort of climbing up the table as well after after being pretty shocking um, in years gone by. So I really like Defensa Justicia. They've got some really interesting players to look out for. Uh, Lisandro Martinez, who they got from Newell's, um, is a really nice ball playing centre back. Um, he's he's been really fantastic for them, and and he's all part of their flexible back line that can switch from a back three to a back four pretty seamlessly. Um, and then they've got interesting players like Nicolas Uvita Fernandez, who's um, who's who's getting goals from wide positions. Matias Rojas, the Paraguayan, has been in sensational form, and they, and they're just really good at taking sort of taking a punt on guys who've, who've missed out on at big clubs, such as um, if you just look at their club, uh, if they look at their lineup now, they've got about three uh, guys who fail at Independiente, Miranda, Tony, um, and Blanco as well is the other one. Um, and, and they're all reborn under that, away from the pressure and, and playing good football. So, um, yeah, they're a really fascinating side, and they they did all right in the Sudamericana earlier in the year as well. So um, certainly one of the more interesting stories going on in the league right now. With, uh, with 
the departure of uh, Baroschelotto from Boca, is there any managers of the, of the Argentine league that you think you know, that the team might suffer because their manager gets poached or you think Boca are going to look elsewhere for a replacement? Yeah, I think you know, I mean, if I was uh, looking to appoint the next Boca manager, then uh, Gabriel Ainsé at, at Vélez is I thought doing you might absolutely say that. fantastic. <laughs> I mean, not just because of my affiliations with the club, but genuinely, he's a really uh, f- fantastic managerial prospect. He's got them playing really high-intensity football. He's he's worked really well with a lot of young players. He doesn't suffer fools at all. He's uh, He can be very cutting and brutal in, in his press conferences. And, and you know, he's going to command the respect of the players with his very impressive career behind him as well. So he, he really looks like one of the, the best managerial prospects in the league um so i think he would he would probably be in pole position if they were to pick up someone uh within the league and certainly i feel like barra hicolotto has, has probably taken Boca as far as he, he he can um there's always that sense that even though he's won a couple of league titles he, he was never quite of that really elite level like gajalo or olan um or even you know some of the more promising managers like Chacho Coulet at Racing. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think if, if I was to go for one, then then it would probably be Ainsé, even though I'd much prefer him to stay at Vélez. <laughs> OK, well, watch the space on that one then. OK, so that's all from Argentina. Um, across the Andes in Chile, um, Universa Cotolica have just won their 13th league title. It was a fairly dramatic final day because... Cotolica went behind early to to to, to Muko, who were uh, who had to win to have a hope of staying up, um, and it looked like it was going their way. But Tomuko got a player sent off early on as uh, as well, um, and some terrible news there because Ignacio Savidra, probably. Probably the the best Chilean under twenty talent in the in the country at the moment, and a and a player the country was looking forward to watching in the under twenty South American Championships coming up, and he's been a key um, player in this Universidad Católica side in the second half of this season. Uh, but unfortunately, Savidra is going to be now out for for three, maybe four months. So. He, he's also probably going to miss the start of Cotolica's Copa Libertadores campaign as well, which is uh, which is a huge shame for the player and the, and the various competitions that he will be absent from. Um, but yeah, Cotolica in that game after suffering that goal of going behind and also of losing one of their best players, they managed to find it in themselves to um, against the 10 men to, to come back, turn that game around and win 2-1, which is... Lucky they only needed a draw, but you know, if if they had lost that game, then Universa de Concepcion would have uh, would have caught them up because they beat Colo Colo two 0 in a in a game I was at a very impressive performance from Universa de Concepcion again a team we very briefly saw in the Copa Libertadores last year, um, well this year sorry at the start of this year uh, where they got well beat by Vasco da Gama. Um, but I think this year the fact they're heading straight into the group stages of the competition will will um, will help them, and that experience from from that uh, Vasco game 
this year will, will probably help them as well. So it's going to be interesting how they fare. They've got a very interesting um, coaching team there. Lots of coaches. That's what I noticed in their warm-up before the Golo Golo game. They've, uh, they've got about eight or nine different coaches on the pitch all working with different sets of players, um, which is very interesting to see. And, uh, and Francisco Bozan, their, their head coach, is one of the youngest um, on the continent. Um, he's, he's in his early 30s. I've spoken about him on, on, on pods before. And uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them in the Libertadores next year. So, yeah, Católica and uh, Universidad de Concepción head into the group stages of the Libertadores next year. Um, Universidad de Chile will be in the qualifying rounds along with Palestino, who won the Copa Chile. I spoke about that on the last pod. Um, but there is some big news coming out of Chile tonight on Universidad Católica, and that is the fact that their Spanish manager, uh, Benyat San Jose, has decided to leave the club after a year in charge. So um, basically he had a clause in his contract that he could activate after a year, which means that he could just walk away. Um, and, and he's chosen to do that. So seems like maybe he's got a better offer lined up elsewhere, whether that's in South America or perhaps in the, in the Middle East. Who knows? Um, a, lot of, a lot of managers from here have, uh, have ended up in... Um, in, in the Middle East in, 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 in recent in recent years. So wouldn't surprise me if maybe he ends up there. But yeah, um, personally, I think this could be a blessing in disguise for Katolika. They had a very impressive defensive record. They were very well organized. Um, it has to be said, uh, defensively very solid. Um, uh, they had the best defensive record in the league and they didn't lose a home match all year. So on the evidence of that, you think, ah, uh, you know, this Benyat San Jose is, is is kind of a very talented up-and-coming manager, but his teams are so dull. Oh, there is so many Catolica matches I've sat through this year, just uh, losing the will to live, to be honest. Um, so I'm kind of hopeful that they're going to appoint a more progressive manager, um, somebody who who will get me on my edge of the seat when I go and see them in the Libertadores next year. Uh, can we get them drawn in with Santa Fe, Adam? Can, can we make that happen? Well, I, I would I would have uh, put my... If, if, if San Jose was still in charge of uh, Catolica and those two faced off against each other, I'd put serious money on a nil-nil draw. But um, it, we have to wait and see who, who, who Cato appoint now that um, San Jose's gone. It'd be interesting what they do. You know, do they continue... And go with with more of the same. Appoint uh, another fairly defensive coach, or do they try and uh, branch out a little bit and, uh, and 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 appoint a more exciting, um, progressive appointment? There's a uh, there's a few options in Chile. So and uh, Dunga, Dunga, <laughs> Dunga. Yeah, I, th- I think Ding- Dunga would, might be a fair comparison with uh, San Jose. Fairly dull. Okay. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's all that's all from Chile. That's, that's everything tied up, I think, for for the pod this week. Just need to come round the virtual table now. I'll, I'll go to Simon first, as it's getting late there in England. So, um, so Simon, I've recovered from the jet lag. Yeah, 
No, not yet, not yet. But I haven't got any curtains in my bedroom, which is a concern because I think I'm going to wake up at like four in the morning. When the start, actually, the sun never comes out in England. What am I talking about? It'll be fine. Uh, yeah, good. Uh, I'm feeling okay, ready to go sleep. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF for Colombian football stuff. Apparently, Colombia are talking to Carlos Quiros. Early discussions, but, but you know, with the talk of Dunga and Filipao, I'm now overjoyed <laughs> at the thought of Carlos Quiros. So, lower expectations are a great thing. And Tom in England? Yeah, you can follow me at TomRobber89. Uh, not too much to plug at the moment, just our spot, uh, scouting spotlight pods. We should have some Colombian uh, episodes coming up soon. And there's obviously the recent Pedrinho one for everyone to check out. Uh, you can also hear my views uh, on the Super Classico on the Golasso podcast if you're so inclined. And Tom in Argentina? Uh, yes, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, uh, River in English, which is carp underscore English. And yeah, there'll be plenty of content, all my views and latest news on on the world of River Plate. And there should be an article going up on the World Football Index site uh, some point on Tuesday, which is a, a written review of the, the Libertadores final between River and Boca. And Austin? Yeah, on Twitter, at Austin underscore James 906. We're only, what, nine days away now from the draw for the 2019 Copa Libertadores. So that's quite exciting. We'll get our fun teams back. No more of this River Boca nonsense. So I know, Adam, you and I are certainly both looking forward to that, as is everybody else on this show. Uh, I'll echo what Tom said about the Scouting Spotlight podcast. Uh, One that is probably going to be of interest to some people coming up is Everton. Uh, the Gremio attacker, uh, a lot of reports out of Brazil linking him to Manchester City recently, uh, a move that could take place after the Copa America. So if you want to know a bit more about him, be sure to check out that Scouting Spotlight podcast. And then as Adam mentioned, I have a piece on the website right now breaking down the draw uh, on for the FIFA Women's World Cup next summer for those three South American sides. So if you're looking for a little bit more information uh, beyond what we said on the podcast, be sure to check that out. Yeah, got to love a draw. Um yeah, and as for me, you can find me at AdamBrandon84 on Twitter. Nothing new to plug this week, um, apart from the, that article I mentioned right at the start of the pod um, about this about that Libertadores final being moved to Madrid. But yeah, no, no update since then. Uh, so all what's left to say really is a huge thank you to Tom, Tom, Austin and Simon for joining me on this pod this week and massive thanks to our listeners if you like this show then please go rate and review it on iTunes um, that, that helps us out a great deal and all I've to say is goodbye adios <laughs>